You're listening to Connecting the Universe from Mike Ricksecker and ConnectedUniversePortal.com. Welcome, everybody, to Connecting the Universe. I'm author and researcher Mike Ricksecker, back at you from the secret library of the Connected Universe. We are going to be looking at paradoxes tonight, paradoxes in the Connected Universe. Uh, well, everything's connected, so naturally everything's a Connected Universe. But, um, yeah, we'll take a look at what exactly a paradox is where we get that idea from, how we work that into, say, our films, our books, sci-fi, this sort of thing. And do these things actually really happen and really occur? So for those listening to the podcast version of this later, I do want to point out that uh, you can join us live every Wednesday night, 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time, ConnectedUniversePortal.com for the full experience. There's a 30-day free trial, but uh, it gives you access to a whole lot of material. Of course, the weekly Connecting the Universe classes, which you get to partake in the uh, you know, full slide presentation, the video clips. Instead of just hearing them, you can actually see them, too. We have monthly Q&A videos, exclusive articles, insider travel blogs like Ancient Egypt, America Southwest, Ireland. I know I keep saying I'm going to add to uh, the Egypt vlog, and I am. There is a lot of material to go through, and uh, I'll be uploading that very soon here. I know I keep saying it, but that'll happen. A sneak peek of behind-the-scenes videos as well. Uh, lots and lots of stuff going on, especially with the new book. So if you've seen me kind of pull back from social media, like I don't think I posted anything on Monday this week, um, is because I am working on the new book, of which if you if you watch the time slip stuff uh, from last week, or I guess on the, if the podcast, if you listen to it, uh, that, that was a sneak peek of the new book, as is this topic here, paradoxes. So all of this more, connecteduniverseportal.com. And by the way, members... Uh, you can download an app. If you just go to the community area on your phone, it will give you the option to download the app, and then you'll get uh, all the notifications of when things are uh, you know, posted to the site. When we go live here on Wednesdays, you'll get all those notifications. So, um, And also for members, the monthly Q&A video is coming. So I haven't posted the question yet uh, up on the uh, the different social media platforms, but as always, you can always ask any sorts of question. Uh, but if you want to focus on, I don't know, ancient Egypt, time slips from last week, paradoxes from this week, throw those questions out there uh, for the monthly Q&A video. And uh, that will be up this weekend, which I know will be the beginning of April, but uh, you'll have that. Also, one other thing before we get into the show this evening, uh, my 
co-hostess from Edge of the Rabbit Hole, Victoria Monday, pointed out this morning that this is the one-year anniversary of the final episode of Edge of the Rabbit Hole. So that was a fantastic run, six and a half years, and uh, something that I was really proud of. And Victoria was a fantastic uh, co-hostess. Uh, you know, in even my uh, previous co-hostess before that, uh, we always had a fun time. Lots of wonderful, wonderful guests. Uh, the uh, you can still catch a lot of those uh, episodes. The Edge of the Rabbit Hole YouTube channel is still up there, and prior to that, uh, those episodes were aired live on the well. Now it's the Mike Ricksecker YouTube channel, formerly the Hunter Road Media YouTube channel, and so all that stuff. Uh, can be watched there. And there are playlists on both that have Edge of the Rabbit Hole, boom, and watch to your heart's delight. Okay. So uh, let's go ahead and get into paradoxes this evening. Yeah, uh, Jen is in the house, as is Sarah. Uh, yes, it has been a year already. <laughs> goes by quick. And that's why I told Victoria uh, that, yeah, a year goes by really quick. Okay, class question for this evening. Um, I think maybe this one was, maybe it was a little confusing or people were kind of scratching their head, huh? And, and paradoxes anyways are kind of head scratchers, huh? So the question was, uh, paradoxes, result of time traveler activity, just sci-fi storytelling or something else entirely? So that's some of the stuff that we are actually going to be exploring this evening is what exactly are paradoxes. We're going to get into different types of paradoxes and uh, what these might mean when it comes to you know, how we look at time, time travel, the universe, how the universe is constructed, the connected universe, other dimensions, this sort of thing. Starting here with a quote from Socrates. I know one thing that I know nothing which is in itself is a uh, paradox, but I kind of like this one a little bit better for a head-scratching paradox. True or false? I'm lying. Oh. Yeah, you can't have, um, you can't have that one be true or false because if you were to say, yes, I'm lying, then it makes a statement false. And if you say false, then it makes a statement True. Ah, paradox. Actually, I like Robert Heinlein's uh, quote about paradoxes, that they can be paradoxed. And we're going to get into Robert Heinlein uh, a little bit later. But um, basically, Oxford English Dictionary defines paradox as a statement or proposition that, despite sound or apparently sound reasoning from acceptable premises, leads to a conclusion that seems senseless logically unacceptable or self-contradictory. So basically, it's something that if you were to logically look at, it shouldn't be possible. Yet, there it is. There it is. So we're going to take a look at uh, some of these here, and we are going to start with cheese. <laughs> yes, we are starting with cheese. Uh, honestly, I pulled this one off the internet. I I loved it. Uh, Jen and I both are big fans of of cheese. Uh, in fact, I call Jen the cheesaya because <laughs> she is the messiah of cheese. But uh, yeah, so just take in the fact cheese has holes. 
Therefore, more cheese equals more holes. More holes equals less cheese. Therefore, more cheese equals less cheese. Uh, wait a second. How does more cheese equal less cheese? Yes, that's what makes it a paradox. And basically what that is using here, uh-oh, math again. We did a little math last week. We're going to do some more math this week. Uh, basically, it's a transitive property of equality. So you may have gotten some of this in uh, like your algebra or geometry class or something like that in high school. So basically, uh, if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. That's the basic transitive property of equality. And the example they give here on this particular slide is if 1 plus 2 equals 3 and 3 equals 7 minus 4, then 1 plus 2 equals 7 minus 4, which is true because on either side you get 3 equals 3. Works great for math. And that's the issue here when people get hung up on paradoxes is they tend to believe, okay, it can't be true because the math doesn't work out on it. And so there is a, uh, is this quote unquote principle came out in the mid 1980s and it's, it's debatable as to uh, whether it's a true principle, but um, this is the Novikov self-consistency principles developed in the mid-1980s by Russian physicist Igor Dmitrievich Novikov. Some of those Russian names are a real mouthful. No offense to, to my Russian friends, and I do have some. Um, and uh, actually, I have more Ukrainian friends. But in any case, um, that aside. So basically, what this principle states is that while time travel is possible, time paradoxes are forbidden because mathematically, the probability of the event creating the paradox would be zero. This is also referred to as a time protection hypothesis or chronology protection conjecture. Let's pick a term there. So again, I think basically what these theorists like this get hung up on is the mathematical elements of a logic problem. And since it can't be resolved in what might be considered a rationally acceptable solution, the whole thing has to be thrown out. So, again, take the whole cheese issue here. This would basically be uh, thrown out because it doesn't mathematically line up. But yet, when you use the transitive property, boom, 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 it actually works. So... Because of this self-consistency principle that was thrown out in the 80s, there's a couple of uh, renowned theoretical physicists that uh, started debating this particular issue. This is uh, basically what's known as the Polchinski paradox. So uh, Joe Polchinski was a renowned theoretical physicist, primarily working at the Kavli Institute for Theoretical Physics at the University of California, Santa Barbara known for several important advances in the field, like um, several uh, discoveries in string theory uh, that basically help us uh, trace out space-time geometry, uh, and uh, a, a number of different things, like in certain quantum systems and things like that. So Polchinski was uh, having a conversation with uh, 
fellow physicist, Kip Thorne, regarding this particular principle. And when Polchinski was contemplating this, this dismissal of time paradoxes uh, by, oh, geez, Novikov, again, getting hung up on the names, um, he proposed this particular scenario, and this may sound familiar. Yes, you're looking at billiard balls. But we're also going to take into consideration the Einstein-Rosen bridge in a wormhole. So basically the scenario is, is that uh, two ends of a wormhole exists both in front and behind of a billiard ball, respectively. And the ball is rolled into the wormhole at a certain angle. And from this certain angle, when it comes out on the other end of the wormhole, going basically uh, almost backwards in time, um, it hits the ball coming back in at a certain angle and knocks it off course to basically prevent it from rolling into the wormhole to begin with. If that sounds familiar, it sounds a lot like the grandfather paradox, which we'll get into here in just a moment. So basically the idea that, um, you know, of going back in time, preventing your uh, grandfather either from being born or you kill your grandfather or, um, you know, do something where he doesn't meet your grandmother and basically prevents your birth. I don't know why they always use the grandfather. You could just as easily do that with your father, your mother, your grandmother, your great-grandfather, whomever, right? I always choose a grandfather in this particular one. Um, but basically, yeah, you have these, um, you know, two renowned physicists debating about this using a wormhole in billiard balls. And this apparently is a much more acceptable idea rather than the whole grandfather idea. So is it, my question I throw out there is, is this more of an acceptable idea because we're talking about, uh, you know, wormholes and billiard balls and, you know, you have these renowned physicists talking about it rather than, you know, your sci-fi storylines where you have somebody using a time machine to go back in time and, you know, preventing their own birth, like Back to the Future. <laughs> Uh, yeah, let's see. you got a couple comments down in here. Um, so, uh, so Sarah's asking, so the paradox is an absolute, not necessarily, um, because paradoxes can be paradoctored. <laughs> um, paradoxes, I think make the world and the universe a lot more colorful. I think there's a lot more, uh, going on in our universe regarding paradoxes than we, uh, than we give credit for. And I think, um, I think you'll, you'll see that along our journey together. So, all right. Yeah. Back to back to the future. Cause this basically is the whole grandfather paradox, uh, except instead of using grandparents, it's using parents kind of like a, what I was mentioning before. Uh, so I said we were going to get into some uh, pop culture here and this is where we start. So, um, now I don't necessarily believe you need a DeLorean to travel back in time, uh, but basically, yeah, this uses the idea. Uh, you know, Marty McFly uh, hops into a DeLorean so he doesn't get killed by the Libyans uh, and ends up going back in time. Meets his mother, who ends up falling in love with him instead of her falling in love with his father. 
because uh, the, the whole idea was that um, George fell out of the tree, got hit by the car. Uh, Lorraine brought him in, healed him up, and you had the whole Florence Nightingale effect. You guys down there are, are probably very familiar with the story. <laughs> uh, this is, you know, basically a classic movie. So uh, instead, it ends up being Marty that falls out of the tree, gets hit by the car. She falls in love with him. Same Florence Nightingale effect. So what ends up starting to happen is Marty's existence starts to evaporate. And so, you know, we start to see that with uh, the photo that he has in the pocket, in his pocket with, uh, you know, his, his brother and his sister start to uh, disappear there from the photograph. And he basically ends up in an adventure to try to restore them uh, back together so that, uh, so that, of course, he and his he and his brother and sister can be uh, born, actually. And then gets to the point where they're at the dance, of course, and uh, his hand starts to disappear in front of his face. All that fun, good stuff, you know, while playing Chuck Berry later on. And then, of course, when uh, George and Lorraine finally have their kiss, the timeline is restored. So, but, you know, Prior to that, again, we had the whole grandfather paradox where he went back in time and was basically preventing himself from being born. Now, what's interesting is that, you know, it wasn't in immediate effect. You know, in that particular story, again, storytelling, science fiction, you know, they had that take a certain amount of time. But there were repercussions when he went back when he went again back to the future and you know because of certain things that were learned along the way you know george sticking up to the bully biff and these sorts of things it changed time anyway where now george is successful he's a writer he's got books published there you know the family's much better off um biff is no longer the big bully you know, he tries to still get away with stuff. Uh, you know, things still have changed. So, you know, we can see here that even with the bigger paradox that was about to happen that was thwarted, there were still some little things that occurred that changed in the timeline. And that may be what happens when we see things like the Mandela effect. When we have that Know, distinct memory, along with several others, of something that had once previously existed or been a certain way, and now it suddenly isn't. Is that some sort of residue of a time traveler who has gone back, maybe inadvertently toyed with something, you know, like, okay, sure, Marty fixed his whole situation, but there were still little ripple effects that occurred that changed. And so are we seeing some of those ripple effects play out in something like the Mandela effect? So, all right, I promised stuff from Robert Heinlein. And that is predestination. This is a lot of fun. So those that are listening to the podcast version of this later, if you want to skip out or just skip ahead for like the next five minutes, because I highly recommend if you have not seen this movie to actually watch it. And I don't want to spoil it if you haven't seen it. 
uh, it's with Ethan Hawke and Sarah Snook. Came out, I think it was 20, uh, I want to say 2013, 2014, might even be in 2015, somewhere around there in any case. Um, amazing movie, really screws with your head. Uh, it's based on the short story, All You Zombies, by, by uh, again, Robert A. Heinlein. And that's uh, not about zombies that we think of uh, today, like, you know, flesh-eating monster sort of thing. Um, now, this is more of talking about the type of zombie that is oblivious to everything going on around them, where uh, with this particular character, um, he, she <laughs> always knows uh, his and her whole circle. And the reason why I say he, she, his or her whole circle um, is basically this involves an intersex time traveling agent begins life as a baby girl named Jane through the course of events has a sex change operation when the birth of her own daughter results in massive complications. I'm not going to go into extensive detail again. I, I highly recommend watching the movie and those uh, <laughs> down in the chat. If you want to, I know Jen's watched it, but uh, if you want to hit mute, you can. Um, so as a sex change operation, uh, Jane has um, been born with enough, ana enough anatomy of both sexes to first conceive a child and then later through several surgeries create male operating genitalia. Um, and basically because of um, the, the trauma from the birth, this is why she undergoes the uh, the sex change operation. It kind of wasn't her choice. Well, it wasn't her choice at all. The doctors just basically did it. Um, to essentially, you know, save her life, but that's in, what ended up happening. So she ends up becoming a male. But in the meantime, Jane's baby, who she also names Jane to keep the name in the family since she's now going to, you know, take on a male name, uh, baby Jane is kidnapped from the hospital and is whisked away to the past and becomes John, or Jane becomes John. So I know I'm not even, I haven't even been going through the slides, sorry. <laughs> uh, okay, so this is baby Jane. This is Jane with baby Jane at the hospital. And then Jane ends up becoming the man through the operation. So, all this story is being told. I know I said Ethan Hawke is I didn't. Because Jane, who is now John, is telling Ethan Hawke, the bartender, the story of what happened. So, again, oh, so one night at the bar, yeah. Um, John meets this, uh, basically, he's the, as the bartender, he's masquerading uh, as the bartender. Uh, and offers... John, the invitation to become an agent because, again, there's a lot of backstory of how Jane slash John, very intelligent, um, had a lot of amazing abilities, was being sought out by a uh, covert government operation, and all this stuff happened in his and her life. Basically, here comes uh, bartender Ethan Hawke to recruit him. Become an agent, defeat the dastardly fizzle bomber terrorist. 
but only after completion of an initial mission into the past. And during this mission, John meets college-age Jane. Falls in love, conceiving baby Jane. Yeah, yeah, you just heard that right. Jane, who is now, now John, goes back into the past, meets himself when he was still female, and they hooked up and conceived a child. I know, sounds kind of crazy, but by the time the story is done being told, what you come to realize is that we're all talking about the same person here. That Jane, John, the bartender, time agent, and the fizzle bomber are all different versions of the same person at different points in time, all interacting with each other and affecting each other's lives. So this is a, a massive causal loop over and over and over again. The film makes reference uh, extensively to the Ouroboros, the snake eating its own tail again and again and again in a never-ending loop. So these types of loops obviously are also called predestination paradoxes, hence the title of the uh, name of the movie. And uh, one can also contend that Jane and John are their own bootstrap paradox, which we will talk about here in just a moment. Uh, their own physical body having no actual origin. The song, the movie actually has a song in it called I Am My Own Grandpa. When <laughs> um, one guy starts up the jukebox uh, at the bar, that song stops playing. And then as they're walking down the stairs, the bartender, Ethan Hawke, starts singing, I am my own grandpa. And when you go back and watch the movie a second time, you start seeing all these little things uh, that are little hints kind of mixed in that you're like, oh, oh, now that I already know what's going on here, I get it. You know, why he made that little remark here, this little thing was said here, or that look was given there. Um, it's really, really well done. So, um, okay, Jen said it was 2014. Yeah, I knew it was somewhere around there, 13, 14, 15. Yeah, okay, so 2014, very cool. Um, so, yeah, it's almost 10 years old now. Go figure that. Wow. Um, yeah, it's crazy mind-bending movie. And, and the reason why I said, you know, you want to skip ahead or whatever is um, if you go in knowing what it is, it doesn't have as much of an effect as the first time you watch it, not knowing what is going on. And you're like, oh, my God. You know, because as the movie's going along, you're like, oh, wow, that's messed up. Oh, wow, that's messed up. Oh, my God. And then at the very end, you're like, what did I just watch? <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy, which is probably why I love it so much. <laughs> In fact, uh, while I was working on getting stuff together for uh, the class tonight, I watched that movie last night. Yeah. So I had that going on in the background while I was working on all of this stuff. Um, yeah, it's great. I mean, since I know it by heart, I can't tell you how many times I've watched it. It was nice to have for background noise. So, okay. Another look here. One last look at the grandfather uh, paradox. And uh, that is the movie uh, Looper. And uh, basically the idea here, um, when we talk about, okay, time traveler killing his, uh, his or her own grandfather, 
um, that could be killing a parallel universe version of the grandfather. And the Traveler's universe of origin is actually unaltered. So another way to look at that is uh, at the moment of the grandfather's death, a new universe is created with a new timeline beginning from that point. Um, and so with this particular movie, you have old Joe, who's Bruce Willis in here, uh, has traveled from the future to kill the Rainmaker, which the Rainmaker becomes this massive uh, terrorist uh, that basically has the world under control in the future. But at this point, is just a child. So what ends up happening, young Joe uh, gets involved because he's an agent in this world. I'm not going to get into the whole plot and everything, but basically, as young Joe gets involved, um, he ends up killing himself to prevent this from happening. Uh, he states that he saw a world in which an angry child grows up to become somewhat destructive, but that world is destroyed when young Joe destroys himself, and old Joe actually just disappears. Again, the whole idea of uh, somebody disappearing because you know they were prevented from uh, actually becoming to begin with. Again, I don't know if that would really happen if somebody like Marty McFly or old Joe would actually disappear. Kind of depends on whether you, you know, take on the whole idea of the parallel universes, how time works, which of course is why this is in, you know, time travel book. Um, you know, if all time is concurrent, past, present, future, now if you're changing elements of that, would that, is that, you know, why somebody might disappear? Or there are people that believe when you do make changes to the past, that it actually creates a whole other universe. And there's a number of different ways to look at the idea of the multiverse. So I've talked about it uh, in these classes before that uh, there are people that believe that every decision that you make spawns off another universe. So me taking a swig of water right here, that just created another universe because there's another universe in which I did not take that swig of water. And so, you know, with the millions of decisions that we make each day and there being billions of people on the planet, you know, how many different, you know, universes would be spawned off every day? To me, that doesn't seem feasible. And some people then say, well, it's like major decisions. Like, um, you get married, you buy a house, you decide to move across country, you know, those sorts of things. It's like, well, then who's judge and jury on what's a major decision and not that would actually spawn off another universe? You know, um, so there's that idea of the multiverse, but then there are the, are, is the idea of the multiverse by our current theoretical physicists who are saying, well, actually, these are physical universes that, um, and they liken it to something like a bubble, basically, because, you know, big bang, you know, you got a bubble sort of thing. And that there are multiple ones of these different bubbles that are out there, you know, something larger you know, than our own universe. It's all this is contained within. And, um, you know, some, and they all have, you know, different, uh, you know, physical properties within them. So 
depending on the uh, different elements that would be within that universe, you might have one like ours that everything springs up and, you know, things come to life and, and stuff like that, where you'll have others that based on the properties they might have might get started, but start too quickly and die out right away. And others might not have enough juice to really get started at all. And they just became, they become dead space, a dead universe. Um, so they're talking like actual physical universes out there, not, you know, these different splits in time or splits along a timeline. Uh, and so, you know, some ideas are that when like an Einstein Rosen bridge is created, that it might not just be connecting uh, one point in the universe to another, like our galaxy to another galaxy, or even, you know, across the planet. Uh, it might actually be connecting, you know, our universe to another universe out there. So, all right. I mentioned bootstrap paradox here uh, a little while ago. Oh, Sarah saying everything, everywhere, all at once. Yeah, we just watched that movie here. Uh, was it last week? It was interesting. Um, it was really bizarre. I eventually understood, okay, I get what's going on here. I, I get the story that they're trying to tell. It shows a really bizarre way to try to tell it. Um, but got it. Got it. And uh, Tom McNicholas is in the house. Great to see you, Tom. All right. Okay. Bootstrap Paradox. I've mentioned many times in class here, one of my favorite all-time movies, Somewhere in Time, starring uh, Christopher Reeve and Jane Seymour. Christopher Plummer is also in it, by the way. Um, so I mentioned before that in uh, Predestination, Jane and John could really be their own type of bootstrap paradox within a person because there's no point of origin. It's this recurring cycle. And they even make the uh, joke in there, okay, which came first? The rooster, but, <laughs> you know, the chicken or the egg. Um, you know, I had a, when I did a newsletter uh, for the squadron back in 90. Seven, maybe it was early 98. This is back when I was in the Air Force. I had a, a thing in there in the back. Um, and just to kind of joke around, the uh, the chicken is just a way for an egg to make another egg rather than the egg being the way the chicken makes another chicken, that the chicken is the way an egg makes another egg. Another way to look at that, which came first? And so that becomes a question in somewhere in time uh, with the pocket watch. So with the pocket watch, when we see at the very beginning of the movie, this old woman, Christopher Reeve has no idea who he is, walks up to him, hands him the pocket watch and says, come back to me. He has no idea what's going on, but this happens. She walks away and he's kind of left dumbfounded, but he hangs on to it. Years later, ends up at the Grand Hotel um, without going into uh, a lot of detail basically falls in love with a photo of a woman and figures out actually how to go back into time to visit her. Through the course of events, this is Jane Seymour, uh, he gives her the watch. Of course, she's she was the old woman at the very beginning. He ends up screwing up accidentally, ends up going back to his point in time. She's left back in 1912 with the pocket watch. 
And then when she becomes much older and Richard is born and grows up, she comes back as an old woman to hand him the pocket watch. So it's this cycle. You know, which was first, though? Was the old woman handing him the pocket watch the first thing? Or was it him giving it to her as a younger woman back in 1912? Was that where it started? The pocket watch is never bought. We never see it purchased. We never see it leave out of either one of their possessions. You know, it's not like it was found on a, uh, you know, a bureau somewhere or whatever. It's only in the hands of either one of those two. So it has no point of origin. They call that a, uh, a bootstrap paradox, which is uh, based on um, it, our, an archaic term, an archaic idea that we don't really kind of uh, used today and basically your first the impossible idea of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, which speaking again of Robert A. Heinlein, uh, he has go figure a time travel short story called by his bootstraps in which his protagonist copies information out of an old notebook, which he himself has made a copy of several years earlier. So uh, yeah, Heinlein really liked paradoxes in his writing. So uh, def definitely recommend his work. Another example of this is uh, my all-time favorite show. Kind of barely edges out Lost. I really loved Lost too, but Dark, Dark took it, uh, took that title. It's a German-based show um, developed by Janta Fries and Baron Bo Odar. Uh, they, it's crazy. So they just um, had 1899 canceled on them from Netflix which, um, yeah, I, which is another show that uh, really, <laughs> really had you thinking. And we're like, what the heck's going on here? Um, but it was like, yeah, Titanic meets Dark meets uh, Lost. It was just, it was great. Um, they just canceled that. But same, uh, same ones. Dark uh, was uh, widely critically acclaimed, a huge international success. Um, actually on the, uh, the official Netflix head to head polls, um, beat out stranger things for number one, um, a few years back. So in any case, getting to, uh, bootstrap paradox here, um, this book here, which is actually titled journeys through time. I, I know it's in German on the, on the front of the cover, but you can see even the paradoxal optical illusion on the front cover um, by H.G. Tannhouse. It's, it's handled by multiple characters throughout the series, but at one point actually ends up in the hand of the author himself. So you can see on the back of the book cover here, it's an older uh, photo of him, and this is where he actually first gets it. However, at this point when he receives it, he had never had any inclination to write a book at all and therefore would never have written it without ever having seen the book first. So then, of course, the question becomes, how did the book get written in the first place in order to eventually end up in his hands to inspire him to write it? Again, it has no point of origin. 
So similarly in this particular series, Michael, he, he does commit suicide in this at the very beginning of the show. Uh, it's basically the first scene. And, um, you know, he writes a letter uh, to his son before he, uh, before he hangs himself. However, he never, he, later on when they do a, a flashback, a time travel flashback, Jonas goes back in time before his father takes his own life. Um, Jonas hands him this letter. But Michael had no idea, had never seen it, had never had any inclination to write a letter to begin with. And therefore would not have known what to write in the letter if Jonas hadn't given it to him to begin with. So therefore the information within the letter has no point of origin. And I'll throw one more at you because these are just fun. We'll go with Harry Potter. Yep, Harry Potter. Prisoner of Azkaban. So when Harry is being attacked by the dark Dementors, um, all of a sudden across the pond, there is this Patronus, which is a type of spell of basically a light being of a light animal um, in the shape of a stag saves him. It scares off these you know dark, hideous Dementors. So at first, Harry believes this is somehow his father's doing because his father's symbol was the stag. Um, he and his, his buddies all had nicknames. Um, and his was his father's Harry's father's was prongs, which was to signify the, you know, big rack of antlers, uh, on his head, uh, on the head of the stag. So, um, so he thought it was somehow his father who his father had passed way, had passed away many years before him when Harry was just a baby. Well, somehow he believes it's his father. So again, time travel element here. Um, Harry and his uh, fellow classmate Hermione jump back in time um, because they need to do some things there to fix what happened. Um, so they are across the pond watching the Dementors feed on Harry. And Harry, all of a sudden, after watching this, and Hermione's like, you're, you're dying. Um, he suddenly, boom, conjures the Patronus when... You know, but throughout the movie, he had had a lot of problems trying to conjure this particular spell, but boom, he's able to conjure it up and scares off the Dementors. So Hermione then asks him later, okay, um, how did you manage to do it? And Harry says, well, I finally realized that it wasn't my dad. It was me across the pond that had conjured it. And since I had already done it because I saw myself do it, I could then therefore do it again. <laughs> so again, it's another causal loop. Uh, with no origin. How could Harry have ever been saved the first time around without the time travel aspect creating a loop to make his rescue possible? Yeah, it, it's this whole no point of origin in which uh, in, in which we get this type of bootstrap paradox. So, moving right along. <laughs> uh, catch 22. Catch 22. You guys know what the term is from? So it's actually based off of a 1961 novel called Catch-22 by Joseph Heller, uh, in which a soldier who wants to be declared insane to avoid combat is deemed not insane for that very reason and finds himself juxtaposed between these two positions 
or what we call circular reasoning. Of course, they made a, a movie out of it. But basically, it's a situation in which somebody needs something that can only be had by not being in need of it or vice versa. So um, it's, it's part of our everyday lexicon uh, these days. And, you know, kind of the example I end up giving in the book is, you know, it's, it's, we see this when we're trying to deal with some sort of authority like health insurance or banks or telephone company or something like that, where they want us to jump through some sort of hoop that we can't resolve because of some mind boggling prerequisite that requires we've already jumped through that hoop to begin with. So going back to our pop culture references, we'll, um, we'll use Michael J. Fox again in the movie uh, Secret of My Success. So basically, he's out job hunting, and no one will hire him because he doesn't have the experience. So he remarks, how can I get any experience until I get a job that gives me that experience? So kind of basic uh, catch-22. But, uh, but, but that's what we're talking about here that, you know, they want him to already have experience, but he doesn't have it yet. You know, even though he went to college and he kind of throws that out there, you know, well, then why did I go to college? And the guy's like, well, you had fun, didn't you? Uh, okay. So, uh, we kind of see that again in, uh, Harry Potter, uh, the first one, Sorcerer's Stone, where, uh, Professor Quirrell is trying to get the stone, the uh, Sorcerer's Stone, out of the Mirror of Erised, which is desire spelled backwards. He desires the stone, and there's a point in time, this particular photo doesn't show it, where, um, you know, he sees it, but he can't, he can't get, he can't get it out. He says uh, the mirror shows him holding it, but the mirror won't release it because of a prerequisite Quirrell can't achieve which is the fact that he actually wants to use it. The spell that's on the mirror is, you know, you can you can only get it out of the mirror if you don't want to use it. Yes, the mirror is enchanted and the stone is hiding within the mirror. I know, that's magic for you. It, re it releases the stone to Harry, however, because Harry, although he wants the stone, try to protect it from Quirrell, but he doesn't actually want to use it. So it's sort of a paradox. It has that same circular argument. Um, and so J.K. Rowling kind of, you know, skirts around the whole idea of a, of a catch-22 there, kind of using it a little bit here, um, you know, within this, basically for Quirrell, uh, not necessarily for Harry, because Harry's able to get it. So... Yeah, fun stuff. See, this is why paradoxes are fun. It gives us cool little mind benders like that. So, all right, we're kind of winding down here. Um, last, uh, you know, 10, 12 minutes here. And I thought I would throw a couple of uh, optical illusions at you. Uh, not, too, not too many, though, because the, uh, the people listening to the podcast later won't be able to see these, so... It's kind of not fair to the podcast users to do optical illusions. But hey, podcast users, come out. Join us every Wednesday night live, <laughs> 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern time. Connect to universeportal.com and you can see these for yourself. All right. So we need the, uh, the Penrose stairs. And apparently my 
illustration photo didn't upload. So let's grab that here real quick. And here we go. All right. Penrose stairs. So this is a favorite optical illusion of many. It's the staircase that goes round and round and round, never going up and never going down. Although, if you look at the illustration, it clearly appears that you can, you can see people going up and down the staircase, but it just goes in a circle. So this is an optical illusion. Um, illustrator was uh, you know, very good at his task here. We see this used in the movie Inception. And the idea here, used in an Inception, because uh, basically they're trying to create a, a confined sort of maze within the dream world um, you know, as a way to be able to use less space, but um, but be able to keep things moving along, basically. So here we see the Penrose stairs uh, in an office building, They're going around and around. And again, doesn't look like it's going up or down, you know, but you can see people walking along it. And then we're kind of zoomed out for a second. And oh, there it is. That's that's the illusion where on a physical level, if you take it back like this, okay, you can see where if you adjust the camera, then it would look like it's actually together. So that's where it's used in Inception. Uh, another paradox that we will look at here, or I'm sorry, uh, another optical illusion we'll look at here is the Blavette. She has a lot of different names like uh, Devil's Tuning Fork or Impossible Trident or this sort of thing. So when you're looking at this, the end of it looks like, you know, we have three rods uh, on the left end there. But if you look at the right end in the middle, that that rod in the middle just kind of disappears because then it just becomes the two sides. So what in the world happened there? If you stare at it a little while, it kind of bugs out your eyes, at least to me. Um, so we see some different variations of this. And this next one, if it'll pop up here, there we go. Um, you can actually see the Blavette with, um, with a couple of nuts here. And you look at the, uh, the optical illusion within the nuts uh, that would screw onto the end of the Blavette. And even the, uh, the rectangle that they're trying to uh, screw that into is even an optical illusion itself. So that one can really trip out your eyes there for a little while. And then um, this particular one, the Undecidable Monument. It almost looks like some of those different uh, doorways that we saw in, in Egypt there that uh, basically like the um, what I'm using for the Stargates of Ancient Egypt tour. Well, sign up this year. We're going next year in 2024. Uh, but yeah, you can kind of see the middle there. It's basically the Blavet again, but you know, they've put a little artwork around it where instead of the like tuning fork sort of thing, you've got the, um, the columns and the water, the boats rolling through. And then the, uh, the clouds where that third column kind of disappears in the middle. So, uh, yeah, so fun stuff.
I did throw another one in here at the end, just um, at least in my notes, in case we had a few minutes at the end here, which we kind of do. And I have talked about this one before, but um, I do like to mention it because it's a paradox that I really don't think is a paradox. Um, it's just perspective. And that's the Fermi paradox. So this was a, uh, a paradox that was postulated in 1950 by Italian-American physicist Enrico Fermi. And basically, um, what he says is that, uh, that this paradox addresses the apparent contradiction in the perceived lack of evidence of extraterrestrial life and the high estimates of extraterrestrial life throughout the universe actually exists. The Fermi paradox is basically the idea of, you know, how can we say there is all this extraterrestrial life out there in the universe when we haven't technically um, found even one extraterrestrial life form? And I'll kind of put the air quotes around that because I believe there are a lot of people in the ufology community that would argue that, that believe that we have actually already interacted with uh, extraterrestrial life. And there are some that would even say that we have extraterrestrial life living on our planet that we currently deem as terrestrial to our planet, like the octopus and things like this. But in any case, um, here's where I kind of break this one down. Because uh, really, I just think it's a, a matter of perspective. And what that perspective is, is that people, and it's like this, humans tend to, you know, we, a long time ago, centuries ago, we discredited the notion that, you know, the, uh, you know, that the earth is the center of the galaxy, that, you know, everything else revolved around us. Okay, fine. We finally figured out that it revolved around the sun, but then it was like, well, the, you know, our solar system must be the, you know, center of the universe. Well, no, it's not. You know, but humans have this propensity to believe that we are the, the center of everything. And so, to us, everything is extraterrestrial. Well, yeah, great. So to an extraterrestrial life form out there, we are the extraterrestrials. We are the extraterrestrials to everything else in this universe. So if that is the case, then the Milky Way galaxy, all right, that has far as we know at this point in time, one planet with life. So Milky Way Galaxy has, let me bring up the uh, numbers here real quick. Uh, NASA estimates that there are 100 to 400 million stars in our galaxy, which is about average for a galaxy per current estimates. You know, we're still finding out uh, more and more. And... There are, as far as the number of uh, galaxies, or I'm sorry, stars in our known universe, stars in our known universe, because we truly don't know how many are out there. Um, 10 to the 22 power to 10 to the 24 power, which is... Um, so again, I'm going to do some math here. I'll just, I'll just read this off. This is actually straight out of my book that I'm publishing here. Um, if we take what we know about our galaxy, that there is one planet with life per every, and I'll be generous to the Fermi paradox, four million stars 
and divide that by 10 to the 24, or and divide 10 to the 24 by that, we find that there may be approximately 2.515, or 2.5 to the 15. Sorry, the way I copied in here, I don't actually have, I can't actually see the exponents. Um, let me reread that. We find that there may be approximately 2.5 to the 15th power, or <laughs> two quadrillion, 500 trillion planets with life in the universe. So again, I really don't think it's much of a paradox as it is just perspective. And we basically just have to stop thinking that we are the center of the universe and take into account that to everything else in the universe, even to our moon, to Mars, to Venus, we are the extraterrestrials, everything else in the universe. So that's the Fermi paradox. And I see uh, Jeanette Kemp is in the house. Great to see you, Jeanette. Um, yeah, I also noticed that um, I had the notification for the meetup set at 9, when we're, which is when we were ending, rather than 8. But... Um, but on that note, just to let uh, those that are members of Connected Universe Portal know, uh, you can get those notifications uh, to your phone through the app. Just you know, go to the site on your app, download, or go to the site on your phone, download the app, and uh, any of the updates to the site, you'll get on your phone there. So, all right, everybody, I know there are some hijinks here at the end of this one. Really appreciate you coming out and talking with me about paradoxes. To me, again, this is always fun because of all the pop culture references. And that's where we see a lot of this play out is um, you know, writers and filmmakers will explore those ideas of paradoxes. And again, I do believe that we actually see some of those uh, within our lives when we start coming across these you know, kind of mind-boggling uh, things that just don't make sense in our world, whether it's the Mandela effect or some other things, and it just kind of makes you scratch your head like, hmm, what in the world happened there? And it may just be one of these paradoxes that are playing out. So, all right, everybody, have a great night. Till next time, time really exists. <laughs>